0: Welcome to the Learning with Lowell podcast. I am Lowell Thompson and my lifelong love of learning saved my life. A few years ago, I was in and out of the ER and ICU with no end in sight due to, at the time, a mysterious illness. I read medical journals, talked to scientists and researchers, and learned how to develop a good treatment plan, all of which put me on the path to becoming healthy, which I am now. I have met the team responsible for creating the drug that saved my life, and now I am taking my experiences and love of learning and translating them into interviews with experts, CEOs, and scientists in order to achieve three goals in hopefully every episode, to have fun and interesting conversations that are enjoyable to listen to, to learn what these people are developing and creating, to hear what their tactics, strategies, tools, books, and resources they use to accomplish what they were doing so that you can help navigate your career, to help build the startup that you want to build, the best way to help out is to subscribe. Check out the LearnwithLowell.com website where you'll have show notes, hyperlinked notes so you can click around in the audio. Every term that we talk about in the episodes go into those notes and they're clickable. There'll be links to everything in the show notes at learnwithlowell.com The best thing you can do is to sign up to the weekly content letter that I put out it comes out every week. It is fantastic. It comes from the interviews with guests. It comes from me just reading a lot on the on the internet. You'll have book recommendations, video, articles, things to help you progress in your careers, things to help you develop your startup, things to, that are just fun and entertaining to listen and watch. You'll have all that every week. So definitely sign that up, check it out, and tell all your friends about it. That's the best thing you can do to help. Today we're joined with Elliot Roth, CEO and founder of Spira. We're going to get into today what Spira is, how it revolves around agriculture, and just to give you a list, because this is a two-parter you're going to get this week and you're going to get next week. In this episode, we get into FBI bioterrorism, his relationship with the FBI, the how to find a fulfilling life objective and pursuit, how he is developing a startup, how he got started, his thoughts on ubiquity in terms of what he's developing examples and precedents and history of what he's trying to develop why he wants to meet the blue man group and kimball musk if they're listening or anyone knows them you should probably connect them with this guy we brainstorm around some a few business ideas as well how he forms 100 day challenges to push himself and others how he hires and mentors people to get the best of them how he handles immigration and getting visas for employees that he wants to hire questions that he's always wanted to have answered literally more 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 there's book recommendations there is website recommendations there is learning about him in a really fantastic way how he went from diy bio in a shitty lab to a number of 100 day challenges to now running and owning and operating his own company the different ways that he has found to finance and operate his startup fantastic conversation two hours two parts this is part one tell me what you think send elliot an email letting him know how much you love this and let me know if you like it as well also let me know if you like the two-parter i just felt it was a little easier on the download um uh, bit because it was actually quite uh thick of an episode so without further ado let's get into the part one and next week we'll have part two all right hit the record button unlike the us government i always like to let people know when i'm recording them and there's a little blinky button in the top of the left corner um so my, my Wi-Fi
1: password is, uh, I'm sorry, my Wi-Fi account is NSA white fan. Mm. So that people, when they look for Wi-Fi, they're like, oh, oh my God, they're watching. <laughs> I got a really good relationship with my FBI agent, my local FBI agent.
0: Hmm. Is, is that true? Is
1: <laughs> 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 Well, kind of. So, so um, to give, give some context, uh, Lowell and I are talking, I am currently in a do-it-yourself biology laboratory in los angeles california called the lab and part of what we have to do is check in with our local uh, fbi bio terror bio weapons oh, okay uh, people just to let them know that we're not doing anything crazy um so yeah more or less uh always have a good relationship with your local fbi agent
0: are they are they and <laughs> like <laughs> I watched, I read some books on them and then, you know, I watch TV and I, you always wonder like, are they really like that? Are they, do they have humor or are they like homogenized? Kind of like the people in Bones?
1: Yeah, well, okay. So, so I would say there's two different types of people for an FBI agent. The first is an informant and then the other is a suspect and they act in completely different ways for either. If you're an informant, they want to be your friend, right? And so a lot of the people that get into the, um, you know, Bio weapons, bio side of things, chemical weapons, or whatever—they're—they're they're huge nerds. They're really into all sorts of different science things, and so they geek out so much. And if you act like like their friend and you're you're like sharing what you're doing and other things like that, they're really friendly. If you act like a suspect, they try to get as much information from you as possible without revealing anything. Mm. So they're very stoic at that point. Um, I, luckily, I've never. Been a suspect for anything, uh, nor do I think I have any reason to be, or anybody in my community, really. Um, so yeah, let's let's hope I keep it that
0: way. <laughs> I mean, as far as you know, like people thought for the longest time that they didn't have a case file on uh, what uh, 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 not Luther Robert King. Downey Jr. the the uh, Martin Luther King. Like they had a file on that okay. guy, and no one thought that was true for the longest time. So they could already build it, build in a case with you. But, um, sure. <laughs> I, w- I will say on the and the terms of like bioterrorism they're like batting a hundred and there's probably a tons of stuff. That's the thing. Like with security in terms of our, our country, it's like, you only see the stuff when it screws yeah. up. So that, yeah. like, and you know, with uh CRISPR and all these technologies, I imagine the bar for causing problems is so low that there's probably a lot going on that we don't know about, which is just fantastic that they're doing it. it <laughs> the, only, the only like bad thing is that they don't get credit. You know, like that person goes home to their wife or their husband and they're like, what you do today? And it's like, no, inside the like, save the planet. Save the planet. <laughs> save the United States. Uh, stopped yeah. a virus outbreak from happening. Um, but they can't. So they say, oh, nothing. Just, you know, another day at the office.
1: Yeah, just another day at the office. You know, save the world. Uh, yeah, I, I actually started um, with a couple of my friends a, a while ago, a think tank on uh, biosafety. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason around it was that uh, companies and organizations don't really know how to deal with new biological tools, don't really know how to interact with them. And what what uh, we kind of came to the conclusion of is that there's a lot of talk about nuclear weapons, there's a lot of talk about nuclear control, but there's not much talk about bioweapons. And so I'm like much more uh, worried about North Korea's bioweapons program than I am about them having nukes. And... Um, I'm much more concerned with uh, corporate action to, like, I don't know, destroy crops or or stuff like that, where it's corporate sabotage and like not being able to to get enough food or things things of that nature. Um, and what's what I kind of see happening is that uh, in I'm in a do-it-yourself biology laboratory, which basically is just like a open space where you can come do experiments with shared equipment, like a maker space for science. And the people around here are, you know, just beginners. And so I'm not concerned as much with anybody doing stuff in biology right now, just because it's so hard to do anything worthwhile in biology still. I'm more afraid of disgruntled academics because you know, they don't get paid much. They have access to all sorts of equipment. They've been trained for years and years and years. And so I'd be um, worried about that angry professor that you have who always grumbles about people not listening to them doing
0: something crazy. Hmm. I mean, that, that is in essence how we got the Unabomber, right? Like he just got pissed. Like he went up into the woods and like, don't, he got caught by accident. Like, like, I think one of his relatives like pointed him out, but I think that's, (laughs) it's, it's, it's like a worthwhile thing. Like trying to like, keep people educated and mindful of this because like the you see the like the facebook trial or whatever that went on and our elected officials i'm a lot of them i'm sure are very well meaning but like you could tell by some of their questions they didn't understand what's going on so they need like good aids and like people they can talk to to like you know understand that like yeah to some to some level if you understand it enough you can make it something that's really simple
1: um yeah yeah i don't i don't think it's something that uh people should be very fearful of. I think it should be something that we we learn about. And um, I think of it in the same kind of way that I think of computer literacy, right? So if you if you take a look at um, the advent of new technologies, think of it like genetic literacy, where the more you learn about DNA, the more you learn how to actually work with biology, the more um, you understand that it's something that can be of huge benefit to humanity. Just like anything else, there is it's a dual-sided proposition there's two ways to really consider it. It's either going to be really helpful or going to be really harmful.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely think this century, it's going to be more biology based than anything. The like the last couple of centuries, we've been very like steel and metal or my, you know, microelectronics and stuff like that. But I think this, this century, the stuff that we're going to be doing with biology is just going to be crazy, especially like CRISPR's made it really easy, but I think we were already going to go that way no matter what. I think that's, that's something that even Steve Jobs said, like, like this is one of the things and even um, Elon Musk he he had an interview where he was asked like if he were to start over as like a college graduate today, what would he study? He would be like artificial intelligence, genetic engineering, and uh I don't know, he probably just i think his third one was like rockets or something, but like he <laughs> he just like rockets so like, worked out like so like the leaders who have the time- I don't know how much time Elon Musk has now that I'm saying that, but like I think I the leaders who have the time are even saying like this is the time to get into these things so um hopefully like the the trend continues that like we'll have no um you know issues go up. But as a funny anecdote uh, involving law enforcement, the I have, I, have of, <laughs> I have a couple of relatives who are uh, police officers. I mean, vague on purpose because I don't know what I'm allowed to say, but the, so they, they, they were listening in on these detectives interrogate the suspect. And the, the detectives were like, we have satellites <laughs> that were watching you for days. We know what you did. We know when you did it. The only thing we don't understand is why. And we would love for you to tell your story. And the person would be like, oh, God, they've got satellites. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have these things. And then they just, like, confessed everything. And they were like, yeah, the body's hidden over there, like, you know. But I only put it there because it reminded me of my sister when I was, like, five. What? <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, that works. Like, you know, like, but, um, I mean, the police use a lot of technology. But at the same time, I yeah. imagine, like, a lot of it. I think this is a good it might thing.
1: Be bluffing, you know, yeah. like that's, that's part of it is, is just like, what is, what is the bluff? What is real? Um, it, and it, it reminds me a bit of, um, it's kind of like game theory and bluffing and hyping up whatever you're doing for, for investors or like trying to get people to believe that what you're doing is, is this really amazing, intense thing. Um, and so like I watched uh, the Firefest documentary recently and um, started reading a lot of stuff about like uh, Theranos and everything associated with that. And I think there's, there's a fallacy that people have quite a bit to, there's, there's a misestimation of the progression of technology in the short term. And then an underestimation. So there's an overestimation of like how great technology is in the short term. And then an underestimation of how great it can be in the long term.
0: Yeah. Uh, Bill Gates says that. That's just, uh, I don't know. Like you're thinking in, in lines with that guy. He's like, soul, solely going to remove malaria from existence. So it's a, <laughs> it's a true, yeah, it's a, like, it's a very true statement. Like people underestimate what they're doing all the time, but I don't know. It's like, it's like a journey of a thousand miles, right? Like once you first start out, you don't really see the end, but by the end you're like, oh wow, I got here somehow. So it works out. The, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, um, though I haven't, I, I think that like Theranos and there's like, I think Juicera in the Bay Area. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think those are really interesting case studies on how the media looks at stories. And that's actually something I'm writing on for my blog. I've been working on it for like three, three weeks now. But like, if you look at the trends, for like Google, and not like Google for Google, I don't know why anyone uses Bing. So I'm just gonna keep using Google. But, uh, <laughs> and if you if you look at the news reports and then how it, it it translates to Theranos being mentioned, it it's interesting what she was doing in the beginning. It was all like that kind of like bluffing big thing. And mm. then because she was getting you know certain people to get into the uh, get on her team and certain people to feature her, which if you actually and this is, I'll write about this, but I'm, you might know this as well, but like getting featured in the news, is not nearly as difficult as people think it is. Like ultimately like most of the news reporters, they have their email literally on their like things that they write about. And they say, Hey, shoot us ideas. And if you really listen into what they want, like they'll like hear that. And then they'll write about it, which is pretty neat, but at the same time kind of disturbing because you get like these Theranos people, which is kind of like our Bernie Madoff, like, like 20, like 30 years ago, there's like that Bernie Madoff guy. I don't know if you know what that is. The guy who.
1: Yeah. 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 The, the, like, um, and en- well, not Enron. Um,
0: he just stole right. everyone's name. I mean, not name, but like he stole all people's money. It was like right. a Ponzi scheme or something.
1: I, I, yeah, I think, I think it was Enron, um, for Bernie Madoff for, um, some sort of like multi-level marketing style scheme. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's intriguing. Cause like I, I work in the food industry. And if you're if you're in any kind of industry that directly relates to people's health and something that they like put into their bodies, um, I think that hype and that kind of bluffing is something that you should not do, ever, <laughs> because in doing so um, you misrepresent something uh, that could directly harm people. Mm-hmm. And what you want to do is be very cautious about what you're saying that you can and cannot do. So like i i kind of take offense to a lot of companies that are going into this food technology agriculture space claiming grandiose claims that they'll like feed the world because it's really hard to feed people (laughs) and it's really hard to do it in a safe repeatable way and um like the there's this uh what do i call it it's it's this idea of of constant simplification constant uh, focus and honing in on uh, making Sorry. something reduced uh, to to its kind of average in different kinds of ways. But we we tried to hire, so so my team is, I, I really tend to focus on how to get as many diverse perspectives um, on the team as possible. And for us, since we exist at the intersection of like agriculture, food technology, and biotech, uh, we get some very unique, interesting personalities. Like everybody knows at least two languages We're from all over the place. And I was trying to hire a foreign national who has a specialty in food science. And it was so difficult to get her on the team and get like immigration figured out for startups that it it was uh, like, it took so long that she ended up taking another job. And I'm still kind of frustrated about that. Because we've we've found some great people all over the world, and it's, it's so challenging to work with them. So uh, we have a kind of unique way of working with people now where they just consult remotely and start working with their local spirulina farms on different projects that are related to our work. So I guess that's a way to circumvent it because they just work in their country of origin.
0: Yeah, uh, the... Uh, uh... I've heard that like it's very hard to like get people to come in even like really high. You think it'd be made easier for these like really technical advanced, like building a company like that seems like so American that we'd make that an easier process, but somehow no. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, uh, is there uh, anything you learned through that process that someone listening could, uh, avoid, or is it just like, yeah. is it the technique of just like getting them on the job where they're at and then maybe slowly transitioning them over?
1: um so first thing i learned is that if you are trying to hire somebody uh if they're in a university it's a little bit easier mm-hmm. and that's because there are known routes to um, have the person in the university uh, do volunteer work or do consulting work different things like that um the there, there's a way to actually have them set up an llc in their country of origin and pay that llc and then that, that is the easiest way to get them on board as a consultant is to have them have their own company and you pay that company as a consultancy. Um, the second way that we found, uh, you don't really want to apply for an H-1B. Um, and that's that's kind of the normal foreign immigration work workers visa kind of thing. Um, and you don't want to apply for an H-1B because it's a lottery system. Mm. And so sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. Um, more often than not, it's like a one in four chance, I want to say, um, something like that. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's difficult. So um, so the other way to do it is getting an 01 or 02, which is when you have like a specialized um, knowledge set that you're, you're not able to really get in the United States. And that's that's a little bit more difficult to prove, and you kind of have to get an immigration lawyer or somebody who specializes in that to, to help you out. Hmm. Otherwise, it's a very challenging, difficult, cumbersome process. So my recommendation is um, revise the immigration system. That would be great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's it's something a little more daunting, but
0: I want mean, an interesting thing. Like everyone always has like their own views on what like right way is and i've i've helped people recruit people before and like sometimes as like the primary person who's making the decision and uh, another time just as like an extra voice to help like someone else make a decision Mm -hmm. and it's like personally it's always interesting to me to see because i have some strong views on like how you should hire people and like what questions you should ask and stuff like that to like suss out who they are yeah sometimes like i hear and this is the question is going to be like "How what's your process but i've heard i've heard people like like they're called like red flags, and then they uh, will be like, "Oh, this is a red flag if they do A, B, and C." And th- I've heard some really stupid ones. Like there was a company who said that if someone says they don't want dogs brought in on Fridays, like some startups do, even though we'll never do that, that we should never hire them. There's like what? Why that's, that's like that's like saying the person will never wear sandals, and we're not. <laughs> like who cares maybe they just don't like their feet like why do we even care or about it? They're, they're like allergic or yeah that's like
1: yeah. an experience where like a dog bit them and that yeah. that's terrible
0: yeah and then i was like I, I was i was like at the time i was just thinking i don't want dogs in the workplace <laughs> but I'm <never> say <laughs> it. like oh god you'll just fire me like uh, it's a weird oh thing. no yeah yeah um, but, yeah but I, what about you yeah how do you how do you think about I, the recruiting process
1: so um, I learned early on that um, you want to make sure somebody has this, shares the same values and the same work ethic. Um, and what I tend to hire for, which, is, which I find is a little different than others and it takes more, more time to figure out, is I hire for learning ability as opposed to experience. Mm. So if you think of the trajectory of somebody's career as a line, Um, like y equals mx plus b, Um, what you find out is that the experience that they have is the intercept of that line. So it it determines on like where their starting point is. Um, But their learning ability is all about the slope. How quickly can they learn? And you only figure out how quickly they can learn after a period of time of working with them. And so what we figured out early on is that we need to work with this person prior to hiring them. And how the hell do you even do that? So I I don't go through the normal recruiting process of like going to a recruiting firm or like anything like that. Um, What I really look for is, one, the people that we're hiring, are they already doing work that's similar to what we're doing? Um, so, do we poach people from other teams? Do we actually uh, go to um, existing spirulina companies and try to say, hey, you know, they, this person should come on board? Or have they founded or started an organization that's similar to ours and we're working towards similar goals? Um, and then, two, I track the progress over time to see how they do.
0: Um,
1: and one of the key ways to actually uh, start is to start working with that person. So, we hire them on as a consultant. For at least you know a weeks' work, a week to a month, and see how they work over that month uh, with very clear objectives and deliverables. It, it's a low-risk proposition. We pay them as a consultant. Um, they're able to figure out whether or not they want to work with us. We have a pretty solid rule of no assholes. We don't want any assholes, um, both like within our team or like bringing on board our team. Um, and so they, they get to see whether or not they want to work with us, and we get to see whether or not we want to work with them, and we get to measure their learning ability over time. How quickly can they learn? How quickly can they implement? How quickly can they uh, grow as a person? Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely take a, take a look, take an eye to realizing that whatever job that you start with isn't going to be the job that you end up with probably five to ten years later. Um, we no longer live in a world where you're going to stay in the same career. And so for the person, what is their overall purpose? What, is, what are the problems they're passionate about solving? Um, and what kind of skills do they want to learn? How do they grow into a role? And if all three of those questions um, kind of align with what we're doing and what they would do at Spira, then it makes a lot of sense. Um, and then it's all a matter of seeing how quickly they learn and whether or not they can be very adaptive because we're, we're a small team and there's a lot of stuff to do. Um, and just like any startup, you have to juggle multiple roles and, and learn quite a bit.
0: Hmm. No, I, I love that. That's really smart. Uh, it reminds me of this quote from Lee Iacocca. I think it was Koka, the auto manufacturing person mm-hmm. where uh he said that you can learn a lot of things when you first meet someone but you can't tell if they're lazy and so that's that's yeah. a, it's a beautiful system where you can have someone coming in it's like that first state thing like they're trying to be their best but if you give them a week or a month like a, like their work ethic will show out that's really smart I, I like that And it's a it's a low cost thing as well because it's upfront. you know like if you were to hire that person and a month later like either one of you realizes it's not the right fit. That's you know a big letdown, but it's like a consultant, and like you both are working to see if it makes sense. Then both of you are assessing it on the same level. I just really like that. That's really, I haven't thought, I haven't heard of that. I've I've only heard of people doing that accidentally. I've heard people <laughs> like, like they'll be like, oh, I hired this on for like a week as a consultant as I phase out the the previous employee. But I've never heard them use it as a rule. But I really <laughs> like that. I'm I'm gonna write that down and steal it.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, of course. I I would prefer more people steal it because I I think one of the One of the key values that we have at Spira, at my company, is experimentation. And uh, part of it is from, like, you know, background of science. But I think that whatever you end up doing in life, that the best way to figure out uh, ways to improve or the best way to figure out whether or not you even like doing it is to experiment with it, to Mm -hmm. test out and prototype and try something really, really small. And I, I wish there were more opportunities for... Uh, young people to do these kind of short-term trials of careers because then you could easily figure out, hey, you know, I want to do this or I don't want to do this and not spend uh, four plus years at a university uh, paying tens of thousands of dollars to get a degree only to realize that you don't actually like doing that thing.
0: Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, I think that's something that we've lost in the modern time. Like, we were talking about Benjamin Franklin uh, previous to our recording, and when he was a kid, his dad, like, took him to, like, different places. Like, oh, this is what a a wicker person would do. This is what a book person, a publicist, etc. And he, like, his dad just kind of watched how Franklin was responding to things. Yeah. At the same time, he also didn't want Franklin to join the Navy. (laughs) So, like, very, like, he had some incentives to, like, figure out what his son wants. And I think that you're right. Like we don't really have a system like that. We just have like almost like a like a like a like a, a factory, like a, a manufacturing line, where yeah. everyone just kind of comes in and and like this creativity, this scientific uh, desire to learn inside all of us kind of gets beaten out. Like how many people mm. think like science is fun? Like, yeah,
1: yeah. like <laughs> not science, many. Yeah, I, I do. I yeah. love science, man.
0: science is fantastic. Like there are a time, like there's some interesting Instagram. Uh, I, I wish I knew some really good ones off the top of my head, but I, say, I have them bookmarked. And like they'll like do little videos of like a cell under a microscope of the fluid going into the different very uh, different cells and stuff. And it seems like a simple thing, but like you're told that your entire life, like yeah, your cells absorb water, they you know kick out water, they like are made of water, but you don't see them. But then when you see them on the microscope, like a plant cell for instance, it just looks really beautiful because I I think plants are beautiful in and of themselves. But like when you see a fundamental thing that is talked about all the time and you actually see it in action, I think it's really interesting. But at the same time, like I definitely going to echo your point. Like I wish there was more of a system that people could try out a bunch of things. Cause I think it's almost like, we're almost like discouraged from trying things like how, how like if you were to be like, Oh, I'm going to spend 10 to 20 hours a week and I'm just going to try a bunch of things. So I'm going to call up some, some places and say, Hey, I'd like to try this out for a month. Like most people be like, why would I give you a month of my time? You know, like mm-hmm. it'd be like a hard conversation. I'm sure if you really wanted to you could sell it but
1: yeah, I, so so there's a there's a couple of factors my my team It's really important. Um, I know we work in a startup and like we're supposed to be really focused um, But I think it's it's important to to work smartly and it's important to conserve that curiosity and so my, my team is filled with autodidacts who are constantly like, teaching themselves stuff, constantly learning, we share resources. And so for us, it's important to kind of conserve the weekend, conserve those periods of time where you don't work on Spira, you don't work on uh, our startup, you focus on other things so that you can bring information back so that you can share the knowledge that you've learned independently. Otherwise, you're just kind of building a monoculture and it's, it's this homogeneity of information. And so that diversity of thought not only comes from bringing on diverse people, but allowing the people in your organization to do diverse things. Otherwise, you, you just end up with a monoculture of people. And it, it's kind of disastrous when you don't have new ideas coming in.
0: Yeah. The, it also gives me this idea of like your system is kind of, it, it's very different than how like a corporate system would work, where it feels like I've worked like when I was a little kid, when I was like fourteen, I worked at Walmart and mm-hmm. like there really wasn't any training or any of this desire to like have people figure things out. So like people would be kind of like bought, like they'd be they they'd be brought on like day one. And like when they would leave, like the difference in them as a person and what they gained through that job is very mm-hmm. like non-existent. But like yours, it's like like you're you're putting a premium on people learning and improving themselves so that the the change over a course of a month or even years, you know, as they stay with you. Like they, like you're like improving your investment in them. I think most people don't get that. Like a lot of people who hire, they're like, what are you good at today? All right. That's what, that's all you can do now. It's like, am I a robot? Like,
1: (laughs) well, it's it's interesting. So like the value creation from somebody learning something. So, so you talked about discovery, right? And I, the, the things that I really look for in the people who are coming on board is this kind of thirst for discovering something new and this curiosity and teaching themselves something. And so by the very nature of bringing those people on board the team, if they're interested in the same subjects that benefit the business, they're going to look for opportunities to learn and grow and develop new, new tools, new things that not only like help them and create new skill sets for them, but end up helping the community overall. So I I think of um, organizations more as like communities of like-minded individuals uh, working towards a common goal, as opposed to um, this is like we we end up taking in money and turning it into more money. I think that that is really harmful. Um, It's more taking a look at how do you help others, um, starting with the customer, then the team and company, and then then whoever else is associated, like partners, investors, other things like that. Um, but it's it's kind of, um, it's almost tribalist, um, where at the very core, we have to constantly help others, and in particular, like keep our customers in mind, um, and then help each other. So I, I, it stems from, uh, I got my start in a do-it-yourself biology, and it's this movement to, Um, teach yourself how to use genetic engineering biotechnology tools uh, outside of normal academic environments. And it it started out kind of as a a frustration and disgruntlement with um, my academic career. So ever ever since I was 14, I I wanted to tinker with DNA and started fiddling around with like different projects. One of my first projects, I I tried to make glowing tadpoles for Mm. my friends um, recreating the 2008 Nobel prize in, in, uh, bio, biology, um, where they made them made, they made glowing frogs using gl- green fluorescent protein. And, um, I was trying and failing and trying and failing. And part of it was, I didn't really have a mentor. So when I finally went off to college to get a degree in biomedical engineering, <clears throat> I ended up working in a lab underneath this grad student. And so, so you would, Mentioned a little bit about like Ben Franklin and, and apprenticeship and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's is, there is nothing more beneficial than having a good mentor, and there is nothing more harmful than having a bad mentor. So, I it, and it, it changed the course of my career. So, I was working under this graduate student um, who was a PhD student. He, he was busy all the time, didn't really have time for me. I ended up just washing dishes, and I would come up with all these crazy ideas. And go in every day really really excited And i went in every day for about eight months and just ended up doing dishes i didn't get any hands-on practical biology experience and at first i thought it was like a mr miyagi thing and then i realized no this guy is just taking my ideas and doing it himself he's not actively trusting me to do any kind of work whatsoever or invested in my own creative development or my own uh technical skill ability and so I was like, screw this. And I decided to leave and build my own lab and kind of set off on my own journey. And um, it's it's interesting when you shift your mindset from a locality to a globality. Uh, I don't even know if that's a word, but um, basically going from, hey, I only have one potential mentor around me, I can only do one apprenticeship, to this idea that, if I have access to these tools, I can source mentors from all over the world, and that's that's kind of what I did, and that's how I sped up my learning ability is by learning from people all around the world who were developing uh, tools and techniques uh, to you know engineer to, to do genetic engineering and work with DNA, um, and so I started tinkering and learning in, in this lab. And I mean, I focused on that for three years, pretty exclusively, and, um, didn't really focus on my uh, schooling because I I was learning so much more in the lab. Mm -hmm. So when I graduated, I didn't have very much in in terms of uh, career prospects, but I knew a hell of a lot more than when I started.
0: It's, it's kind of like you, uh, did like a force mentorship or not, um, there's like a, a book about, about mastery by Robert Green. Have you read it by a chance?
1: Yeah, I love that book.
0: Yeah, that yeah. Book. It's kind of, uh, did you read it at the time? Did it influence this decision to like, like get away from that bad mentor and kind of like be more global? Or do you, or is it just something innate in you that didn't like the situation?
1: Well, um, I, I realized that I didn't have to settle for working in this lab. Um, and I just started learning about DIY biology, and so I've always kind of taken a look at uh, environments, contexts, communities, and um, I think it it is both a blessing and a curse that people who are entrepreneurially minded are very observant of problems. Um, They are quick to recognize problems and quick to take offense to these issues. And so I very quickly recognized the fact that academia was a major problem and that if I wanted to um, get hands-on laboratory experience or start discovering things or working on things that were valuable, I would have to spend, I don't know, 10 years or so, um, ranging from undergrad, PhD, to like a postdoc position, then finally maybe potentially get my own lab and then I would be stuck mostly teaching and writing grants without very much hands-on experience of my own ideas and so i was like well there's got to be another way or if there isn't another way like how do how do i go about finding another way so i I hadn't read mastery but i i kind of had this implicit knowledge that there there were three kind of ways to learn and the first is um by you know reading and absorbing information consuming content Uh, the second is by doing And so by through doing, you actually cement that information. And then the third is by learning from mentors who actually pass on uh, some of that knowledge. So I started searching for mentors all over. Um, I actually traveled to every single do-it-yourself biology laboratory that already existed um, to learn from them, to, to see how they set it up before setting up my own. And then when I set up my own, um, luckily I was, I was, uh, I found a partner in a PhD in analytical chemistry and he had already been collecting laboratory equipment. And so he kind of showed me a lot of the ropes on how to get started, the different things to do. Um, he had gone through the, the heartache and the hassle of getting a PhD. And so that helped immensely as well.
0: Hmm. Kind of makes me think of how, so so often people feel like they have to wait for things like wait to find a mentor to learn things or to wait to find the like someone who's like the master Miyagi like these people that are like really far removed but in a lot of cases uh, the people around us can be very good mentors like the, the person you found like granted you, tr- you traveled to find them but he sounds like someone who was like a couple of years ahead of yourself where I think some people think like they have to find someone who's like 20 40 years ahead and you know when, when in reality like there's probably people around you or someone you can travel to pretty, pretty easily. That's maybe like five years ahead of you that can like better, like even like you can learn a lot in a year that can like, you could deliver down to someone who has an experience that year and make it easier on them. And so like that person who, you know, knew how to build that lab, like knew, you know, I don't know how many more years they had on you or anything like that. I don't think yours is a good uh, qualifier of experience, but at the same time, like they didn't have, they weren't like leaders of like, a harvard lab for instance at least as far uh, as
1: no, I, just just community college professor yeah. who was just interested in, and had been collecting lab equipment and um in his 30s and i was in my early 20s and so not not that big of a gap not that big big of a difference i mean um so, something that's that's kind of funny especially I, I came i went to new york and ended up meeting one of my heroes and after coming back from the meeting with her, I was kind of disappointed because like, she was very, like, uh, hassled and didn't really have very much time. And, like, she seemed very, very much, like, focused on what she was doing. And after coming back from the meeting, I, I had I, – I said this. I said, like, man, that just shows I shouldn't need my heroes. And somebody else confronted me about that, and they, they were like, what are you talking about? Um, They're just normal people like you. They go through everyday struggles. They do, you know, normal things. Um, If anything, you should meet your heroes and then also recognize the fact that they're human, too. And it opened up this entire world of possibility where I realized that the best thing possible that you can you can do to try things is just ask Mm -hmm. and it started me on this path towards just asking people that I thought of as my heroes um, what they thought of my work, or feedback, or um, you know, interacting with them. And so, uh, as a means of kind of kickstarting that, I give myself challenges, and those challenges are like hundred-day challenges. Uh, can you do something every single day, um, and uh, can you have some sort of accountability associated with that? Uh, and it's to develop a new skill. So I started started writing about some of my exploration and experiences in the laboratory. Um, and in particular, focused on something called like synthetic astrobiology, which is uh, the genetic engineering of organisms for space based applications. And so I started writing about that and started reaching out to my heroes in that field, where I would send them like a little article about their work and reaching out to them and getting feedback and, and uh, starting that kind of cycle. And the amount of learning and progress and opportunities that I got in those hundred days were absolutely unprecedented in any other point of my life, just by the very, very nature of creating something, showing it to the world and asking for help and asking if I could help them in what they were doing. And it was, it was awesome because the horizons opened up. I realized that I didn't need to be stuck at state school in richmond virginia in the middle of nowhere and there was tons of possibility if you just ask
0: i love that i love the idea of doing the challenges for i don't know it's like a fun thought exercise so if there's someone with a biomedical degree or someone who's getting one right now and they're you know looking to get into a similar role or like get into entrepreneurship is there a hundred day challenge that you would uh either, maybe not make for them, but like encourage them to think of, to challenge themselves?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, one of the 100 day challenges that I had initially considered was, could I make a CAD drawing of a medical device uh, every single day for 100 days? Could I, could I like go through the process of like, hey, here's a problem in the medical industry, here's a device that could solve that problem, and here's the design file, could I do that in a day for 100 days? And when, when you start cranking through prototypes like that, you build a portfolio. It makes it so that you can point at something and showcase to somebody, hey, this is why I'm worth it. This is what I do. These are the kind of experiments and tests that I run constantly and the things going through my mind. And it makes it so that you become someone really intriguing to talk to. Uh, the... I, I always I always have these um, conversations with people, and and a friend is is like introducing me to somebody new, and they they start trying to describe what I do, and the most common term that people use is you know this is Elliot and he's really interesting, and I I think that is both um, I, I think it's both like a really good a really great compliment where um, it showcases that a lot of the work that I do, uh, you know, crosses a vast spectrum of all sorts of different things. But it's also a little backhanded because um, when when something is interesting, it makes it so that you, like people want to know more, but oftentimes it makes it unapproachable. The minute that you can kind of point at something that you've done, it makes it way more approachable. Uh, It's the difference between a resume and a portfolio. Uh, portfolio is much more directly applicable to showcase these are the things that I've accomplished as opposed to a resume where it's like these are the credentials these are other people who say I've done things
0: Hmm. Well, I uh, I I don't think it's a I I like I agree with you and I disagree with you because I think in terms of like an intro I think it's really good because it shouldn't be you know a portfolio it should be like i think an intro should be as small as possible to capture the person's interest but not mm. so long that you bore them like earlier you asked me like what's new with you and i, I probably bored you like <laughs> trying to find an answer because <laughs> it was like oh i wasn't expecting this answer <laughs> <laughs> so like it was like it was not a good answer What i said but like like a short concise thing that leaves people wanting more is mm-hmm. really a, a good way to like uh especially when you're first meeting people yeah and so, like, I mean, I've, I've been at uh, conferences, and uh, I've had people, I've noticed, like, there's a difference between someone who can be like, my name is Lowell, and I do A, B, and C, or my name is Lowell, or, like, someone introduced you, and they're like, hey, this is Lowell, he's interesting, or this is Elliot, he's interesting, because of X, like, they can give an example, versus, right this is their entire litany You know, like there's <laughs> right, right right and then like the person can kind of like choose their own adventure when you make it short mm-hmm. it's like oh I'll, I'll i'll dive into this area or i'll dive about this or maybe they'll just talk about themselves and then you can just sit there and listen but yeah uh, yeah it's, i think
1: yeah i don't it's think
0: it's like go. the open-ended
1: questions the- you, the open-ended questions that you ask whenever you're meeting somebody. So m- most of the time, uh, it, and it's really unimaginative, people approach you at like networking events or in conversation, and they say, uh, so, so what do you do? Or like, what are you doing here? Um, and it's, it's unimaginative because it, it isn't really an open-ended question. Um, you are cataloging yourself for another person and pigeonholing into what you believe other people think of you. Um, so, like, if I if I asked you, hey Lowell, um, and in like we were interacting at a networking event or something like that, um, the question that I would ask you is like, what what problems are you passionate about solving?
0: Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. The, that's like it's a it's a thoughtful question. I think sometimes people don't put thoughts into their questions. What, mm-hmm. what problems why I? I can answer that. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, go for it. The uh, I think ionizing radiation in space needs to be solved. And I think Mm -hmm. biology is one way of doing it because biology is incredible in what it can do. I mean, there's, there's, uh, organisms that can eat radiation for, for instance, which could be for breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I I imagine, there's probably a way to create an organism through genetic engineering or modify an, an organism through genetic engineering that would be able to like uh reclimate or bi- remunerate like the the chernobyl disaster that you know there's a new tv series on about this and you know make that area not radioactive anymore but like i think i think stuff like that especially as we go into space is really exciting but i i definitely agree with your your point like and i'll ask you like i'll bounce the question back to you because i don't like answering the question about uh about myself too much but so what what are what are some of the problems like because we gotta we gotta eventually migrate to what you're doing now
1: <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah sure fine <laughs> Um, are you still there? Yeah,
0: or, yeah, yeah, I was, okay. wait, I was waiting for you to answer.
1: Oh, no, was... one, one of the problems that I'm passionate about solving. Um, yeah. So I, I, I kind of think that any, any, any action that um, goes about changing the status quo of the world is uh, philosophical and political in nature. And so my main thesis work centers around solving basic fundamental human needs. Using biotechnology, so that's food, water, shelter, uh, movement, uh, sleep, things like that. That's really where I like my jimmies get rustled. You know, I'm super excited every single day, uh, trying to figure out different ways to make it so that we no longer have to worry about the bottom rung of Maslow's hierarchy. We no longer have to worry about just just being able to survive. Uh, Survival still is a giant ass problem for many members of the human species. And so by by like solving that bottom rung, you open up all sorts of different possibilities for global peace and prosperity. Most conflict happens due to scarcity. I mean I can't count the number of times that I've been with somebody and we've argued just because they're hangry, you know? Mm -hmm. So um I think that being able to solve that problem is really at the core of my work right now and core of my focus. you know future opportunities. I I love building communities uh, that serve as tools for entrepreneurial opportunity that are that are more than the sum of their parts too, and so that's part of the reason why I'm I'm very honed in on building companies because I see companies as means of mediating interactions between people. Uh, they're the ones that actually um, are this autocatalytic system to go about changing the way the world works. So I I pair that kind of interest um, with a opportunities that solve problems in triplicate both the developing world the developed world in space and by doing so it makes it so that like you know collectively i build companies that solve basic human needs in uh developing developed and space-based contexts.
0: that's a good answer the, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I, I don't know why but i'm i, I want to ask you like uh what's the worst question you've been asked or like the, but that's a hard question that's a bad question in <laughs> of itself because like that's not a question people could like answer um it's like like what's your favorite book nothing's not gonna pop in your head but if you think like what's the book you've re- uh you read recently that you'd give to someone like that's like a Ooh, question. Yeah, yeah yeah yeah. it's, a little yeah, it's more like, detailed. yeah like um, yeah let's
1: um, see. That, um to answer that question uh, man's search for meaning
0: oh victory um, frankel yeah that's yeah. great book.
1: Yeah, and and it it really cemented my idea that um, what I wish for people in the world is not to find happiness because I think that's that's a really transient emotion, but it's to find purpose mm-hmm. because with purpose you're able to deal with any hardship that comes your way. And so my my purpose is to like like I said before that that's the problem I'm passionate about solving is like basic needs. Um, that is my purpose in in this life. Um, and that's, that's really what I like. start working towards every single day. Um, mostly, uh, and I think there, there's this subtle shift that needs to happen, um, especially in startups, Silicon Valley, people, people that are building organizations, that um, instead of being a, a stopping point, uh, and I read something recently about this, you, you don't necessarily want to be uh, the end of the line Um, It's far better to be a node. It's far better to be a pass-through point. So it's the difference between Yahoo and Google. Uh, Yahoo wanted to be an end-all, be-all point for people to come to Yahoo and stay and spend all their time on Yahoo. Facebook is a similar type way. You come, you spend all your time on Facebook, Um, as opposed to a site like Google, where their objective is to get you somewhere else as, as quickly as possible. And I think that the companies that will be most successful, the organizations that will be most successful are enablers of opportunity, enablers of access, um, as opposed to uh, walled Gardens. And so that, that's kind of built into my, my philosophy of work. It's like, how do we enable access to these basic needs, not how do we constantly be the endpoint point for... Um, somebody's somebody's needs uh where where they find value constantly it's like how do we enable others in different kind of ways
0: mm-hmm. so i guess the, the 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 question should be then t- so we can really get into what you're working on The mm-hmm. um how did do, how does that translate to what you're doing now like
1: uh yeah um so i actually um I came about. I came about starting Spirit in a roundabout way, and I, I think most journeys that start out of personal necessity are um, more impactful and more true to who you are, and and whether or not you're you're truly dedicated to the cause. Um, so, I mean, we we were talking about uh, Juicero and Theranos. I mean, do you think the founders of either of those companies ever had a problem with uh like blood testing in which they needed to get blood tested all the time or if they ever had a problem with uh getting vegetables in the first place um it's it's kind of fabricated problems for fabricated solutions as opposed to real problems and real solutions that you have to solve immediately for yourself so uh when i started spira i was food insecure so like I said before, I had focused so much on my laboratory work during school that when I graduated, I was in Richmond, Virginia, um, which isn't known to have the most biotechnology jobs in the world. And I had like a 2.7 GPA and no career prospects and nowhere to go. Um, and I could either have moved in to my parents' basement or I could have kind of figured it out. And I, I didn't want to wash up like so many of my millennial friends. Um, luckily I had the ability to fall back on that. I'm privileged in that sense, but I wanted to figure it out. So I, I cut costs. Um, I was doing some consulting work. I had some clients ghost on me and had no money at all. I had negative $17 in my bank account at one point. It was really terrible. Um, and so I, I moved out before I was evicted. I moved in with my girlfriend at the time and like being, a quasi-parasite. <laughs> I wanted to to figure out how to at least feed myself um, so that I could provide for my needs. And I had first looked at like vertical farming. I looked at like all sorts of different things. And, and I realized that, you know, micro- microbes and like little tiny unicellular organisms that grow really quick and they're very mm. nutritionally dense. And I looked in what NASA was doing to feed astronauts and I discovered they were using spirulina. And I was like, wow, this is, this is awesome. Like, it, and I started growing it, and I started eating it in my lab, and I, I started becoming like an evangelist of the idea that you can grow these tiny self-replicating food systems and make it so that you can provide for your basic needs. Um, so I didn't have to worry about food. I, I had this like creative explosion where um, I got into an accelerator program um, in Ireland, and I went there and did all that kind of stuff. But um and, and started uh, working and partnering with organizations to figure out how do I actually spread this. So initially, I wanted people to start growing uh, spirulina, which is this um, single-celled microbe. It is 60% protein by weight, it doubles every single day, which basically means that if you if you have like a refrigerator-sized amount of spirulina over the course of three months, it could be the entire mass of the world's oceans, um, which is freaking insane, right? Like. The fact that, that people have issues just getting basic nutrition um, when you have stuff like spirulina in the world just blows my mind. Um, and then you come up against human behavior and like the way that people actively work. And the, one of the things that I recognize is the fact that there's, there's two different modes of human consumption of food. There's either food as a necessity or food as a luxury. And People aren't going to eat spirulina, uh, which is a type of algae, um, unless it's out of necessity or unless we we find a way to get it into the food supply. Um, Spirulina doesn't taste great. It's just very densely packed with nutrients. It's got like 13 vitamins, 8 minerals. Um, doesn't take much to grow. It's just like salt, air, water, or light. Um, You put it in a desert, in a pond, and it grows right so um nasa sorry the u.n had said that it was the best food for the future in the 1970s but it it hasn't really spread because of taste Um, because people haven't really figured out what to do with it besides like a minor nutritional supplement um and so taste is that barrier and i started focusing on flavor development and making spirulina that tastes better Removing all those bad tasting flavor compounds using CRISPR as a means of making it so that it has a very clean flavor profile. We also uh, started working on different extraction techniques. I basically think of myself as like Willy Wonka meets George Washington Carver of spirulina, of different forms mm-hmm. of like algae and single cell microbes and, and cyanobacteria. Um, and so I, I love playing around with how do you design different food substances? How do you make it taste like wild, um, different flavors? And um, what we, we do, so, so we, we started generating that idea. It was me and a couple of friends that uh, were collaborators in this DIY biolab. Um, we went to this biotech accelerator and then uh, realized we didn't really have a good way to scale it, to, to actively start helping people who have nutritional deficiencies, who um, don't really have access to these kind of, um, who, who are looking for food as a necessity. And um, so we, we applied to a World Food Program boot camp. And in working with the World Food Program, we found out that there were spirulina farms all over the world. That this, this spirulina has been grown since the time of the Aztecs, and there's these small communities in rural areas and developing communities like worldwide who grow small farms as spirulina, and they're struggling. So they're, they're eating it as a means of surviving, as a means of, of making sure they don't have nutritional deficiencies, but trying to, to grow, trying to make money, trying to make a living, doing that has, is really difficult. Uh, So we started reaching out to these farms and saying, hey, you know, we'll buy the spirulina you produce and then um, extract it or or work on different kind of techniques to process it. So it tastes better so that we're able to use it for other things like colors or oils or protein isolate or things like that. And um, we'll just become a consistent buyer. We'll enable whatever you're doing. And they loved it. Like all these farms that we've contacted, they love working with us because we become a consistent buyer meaning that they don't have to worry about losing their job. They don't have to worry about um, not not providing for their family. Uh, It also keeps our cost incredibly low and makes it so that we don't have to build our own infrastructure. We just partner with these farms all over the world. So we partner farms in India, Indonesia, Thailand, uh, Mongolia, Peru, and we source all of this spirulina, which comes to us as a dark green powder, and upcycle it here in Los Angeles. Um, and so that that's kind of how it works, and we we actually um, we we found out that food companies in particular are really struggling right now to find better plant protein. Um, I, so so whoever is following the news probably has seen uh, beyond meat um, and how they they recently went public, and um, people are very excited about including plant-based meat and burgers everywhere, um, in fast food chains, all over the place. Uh, The the issue, (laughs) there's a hidden issue in plant-based meat, and that is where do you actually get that protein from? And the majority of protein in plant-based meat right now comes from peas. And if you've ever eaten peas, uh, you probably recognize the fact that it takes a lot of peas to get the protein you need. In addition, you have to process them and do all sorts of weird things to them and they're not complete protein either so you have to blend them Um, and it's still, at the end of the day, it tastes like peas. What we realized is that through this extraction process, we end up with two different ingredients that are really valuable. So the first is um, a a protein isolate that is able to work as an ingredient in plant-based meats. So we've been working with a lot of these you know, vegetarian, vegan style companies who are, are working to displace animal ingredients in the food supply by giving them a better protein supply. And then the, the second kind of ingredient that comes out is really, uh, it's, it's a really dark, vibrant blue color. And we use that as a replacement for petroleum-derived colors. Um, so if you ever have been outside after a rainstorm and looked at the top of the asphalt and you see this rainbow shimmer, um, that, those rainbow colors on top of the asphalt is actually what's used as food dyes in our food products today. We are actively eating all those petroleum byproducts and major food companies recognize the fact that this, this is an issue, it's, it's actually causing some indication of health problems in people. And they're working to phase out artificial dyes with natural pigments by 2022. Um, but blue has been the biggest issue. They haven't been able to find a good blue to phase out their ingredients. And um, we ended up finding out that uh, algae, in particular, produces massive amounts of blue pigment, uh, pretty much as it as grows. So through our extraction process here in Los Angeles, we're able to produce um, Two ingredients at minimum. We have we have other ingredients in our pipeline, but um, different solutions. One of them is for plant-based meats um, and milks as a means of providing a better protein source for them. And then the other is a uh, natural blue colorant that that is absolutely beautiful and able to be used in. Um, I hope like things like Powerade and Gatorade and all over the place pretty soon.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so that that's kind of what my company does in a nutshell. Um, we oh, have. Cool. Uh, talents and skill sets and expertise ranging from biotech to agriculture to food um, to iot um, the internet of things right and so it's it's been really fun because there's constantly something to learn there's constantly new things going on and uh i'm having a blast man i've been doing this for 3 years and i could do this for at least 3 years and more if not more than that yeah.
0: there's a lot there i, I i'm i'm curious the about the delivery mechanism though like if if like how would how would you actually eat it like because on, on your website it just looks like a powder but i imagine that's not actually like if, if someone were to take this what you're doing and put it into like their burger mix instead of using peas and your algae-based burger like would it just be a powder that they use or, like how would that actually work I've, i do not know that process i don't know how yeah. like uh the incredible burger gets made either mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a similar thing yeah.
1: The um, hidden fact of the food industry is that most of what we end up eating is completely fabricated uh, by companies prior to you consuming it. And so these, these burgers, these patties, most of the ingredients that they actually take in and use come to them as uh, miscellaneous powders. <laughs> and it's up to the company to, to figure out how to best utilize those powder, powdered ingredients. And so most, most of what we do is, is actively um, create those powders and then showcase to these food companies how do you actually use this in your end product. Um, so our, our protein isolate is kind of like a white beige powder uh, that companies can use as a main protein ingredient in their end product um, where you, know, you can bake it, you can fry it, you can do a bunch of different stuff with it and it it should have the chewability and texture of meat if you do it correctly
0: and that was part one of elliot roth founder and ceo of Spira inc check him out on his linkedin you can check that in the show notes additionally he has this website spiritinc.com that's s-p-i-r-a-i-n-c dot com spelt normally Uh, Check out his stuff. Let me know what you think. And look forward to part two next week. Two-parter. Part one this week. Part two next week. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends, please and thank you.